so there's been a prediction that we're going to hit a limit on uh, uh, the uh, so-called Moore's Law about speed of computers, uh, at least in terms of single processors. Uh, we can probably surpass Moore's Law by going parallel, but uh, the, the assumption there is that we're going to continue to build deterministic computers uh, and once we hit a quantum limit where they're no longer deterministic, we've got to do something different. We either go parallel or this notion of quantum computing succeeds or does not succeed or something like that. But let me, let me suggest there's a third way, and that is to keep making computers smaller uh, and let them hit the point where they are no longer deterministic. Uh, and just keep going right into that realm. Uh, it, it would kind of, uh, uh, how shall I say, uh, computing would then become a very different kind, programming would become a different kind of thing because you're always dealing with a substrate, which is a computer that's not going to do the same thing twice when you run your program. So you get rid of the determinism of your computers. And uh, the question is, can you have a useful computer language that's dealing with a computer that's not reliable. Uh, also, is it a human programmable language? I mean, that's what it fundamentally resolves on, uh, whether it's something else. Well, let me let me put it in a simple fa simple uh, word. I, I, I came up with this notion a long time ago, and I called it fault-tolerant algorithms, building on the concept of fault-tolerant computers. Uh, fault-tolerant computers come up with a, try to come up with a deterministic result despite uh, components being unreliable. Uh, a fault-tolerant algorithm tries to come up with a reliable result despite the whole computer being unreliable. Now, what I'm suggesting is if we went for that kind of computer, we'd start entering the realm at which William is complaining, uh, is, complaining uh, is, uh, is, is uh, suggesting that uh, living organisms are working on because they're always working on the substrate of unreliable components. Unpredictable components. Unpredictable. Not necessarily unreliable, but unpredictable. Unpredictable. So how do you do computing with unpredictable components in your computer? And I think if we can solve that problem, then the, the, we will start blurring your distinction between uh, what a computer can do and what a living organism can do. Is power reliable? Parallelizable? Is, is power, as in the energy that you put into a computer, reliable? Because it can be removed at any time. That's exactly my point. And contemporary computing systems, and I've dealt with fault-tolerant systems that are based on this very principle, have to be able to deal with the potential of power being removed at any given time. And they do so with programs which are deterministic. Oh yes, yes. But uh, that's I, I'm an thinking... interesting argument. Let me let me. It's not an interesting talk... argument. It's a fact. Mm, <laughs> well, determinism yeah. here, distributed determinism, does have properties that Dick is actually talking about. It doesn't, it, William? Can we agree on that? Um, I'm not sure that the properties are there. I'd have to think about that a little bit. I'm going to listen to this particular uh, uh, Biota Live very carefully to make sure that I've got all of my arguments correct. Very but good. ultimately, ultimately, you ask, 
can power, is power reliable? And no, power is not. How do you account for it? You account for it by writing code which deterministically addresses those issues. A classic issue is um, atomic uh, change to a database. You like to have atomic change to databases so that you can avoid problems of conflict between two or more changes to the same item in the database. The way you handle those problems is atomic manipulation. It's a what, what deterministic is, can you define solution. That? William, I, I'm not familiar with the term. Um, the notion is, let's say that, um, well, a classic place where it's used is in airline scheduling. You can't have two passengers in one seat. But it's always possible for two different people at the counter, at different counters, to try to reserve the same seat. Right. How do you okay, account so, for that? Okay, so what happens? Um, well, the software is built in such a way that um, it probably will involve something like Lamport's algorithm for timing and so forth, so that you can determine who was first. What happens if they're both exactly the same time? You flip a coin. You flip you, a coin. You sample some pseudo-random generator, and based on the result, you choose. But here's the point. Here's the point that you're missing, William. It is not the case that you have two people entering the same data on the same machine. What, you're, what you're implicitly saying is that this involves a network that has communication where the machines may not be touching. They may be communicating through a network. That's and touching these, in my view. They've got a wire between them. Well, yes, but they have a wire between them, between machines which could be unplugged. The wire could be hit by bulldozers. If the, if or, the, if the wire's unplugged, then the message won't get through and there won't be a conflict. Okay, but, but... Between, it's not like that there's just a single wire going from one terminal into the big mainframe and another single wire going from another terminal into the same mainframe. So there's a billion wires. What's the point? The point is, and this is very interesting, that we start moving towards the description that Dick gave originally in terms of the fact that we're not just dealing with pure determinism when you have network factors involved. No, no, no. The software is purely deterministic. All of those other things that occur external to the software are things that the software is designed to handle. Have just, you ever written these just, kind of applications? I'm give you, no, I'm going to give you a very specific example. Okay. Just because we use pseudo-random number generators doesn't mean we might use some alternative source. And and Dick has complained to me in email about this suggestion that I made, but I'm going to make it here just as well. He might have a better example. But you could just as well, for your random number uh, generator on a computer, have some sample of white noise. Certainly. I've, okay. I've got no problem with that. We're talking about an airline transaction. It doesn't over... matter. No, it doesn't matter what the source of the measurement is. Once it's in the frame of the computer, once it has been sampled, digitized, and presented for use, all other computation is deterministic. It doesn't matter what occurs external to the machine. The machine itself is deterministic. And we go through great lengths, great efforts, to ensure determinism within our processors. That's why we use error-correcting codes to eliminate all sources of indeterministic behavior. 
Have you ever written and software in high, high noise environments? I've written pro software in many noise environments, tri-solid fuel rocket motors or liquid fuel rocket motors that go out into space. Okay. There are lots of environments where you have noise. That does not mean that the software is non-deterministic. Hmm. You are conflating concepts. Hmm. Programmers write programs and are able to determine what they do. Notice the word determine. Yes. Because of an expectation of deterministic behavior, period. Of the, of the computer. Of the computer within but that computational environment. Using, yes. When, yes, yes, okay. I, 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 will, I will say that your isolated example for a particular group of programmers is the case with regards to determinism. However, I've certainly encountered a number of problems that particularly relate to network traffic. And, and the, the rocket example isn't a good example because you're basically dealing with a communication which is being interacted with and having noise. In, in like It's a one-to-one -one communication correspondence with the noise being aided over that component. This isn't a circumstance where you have a distributed set. For example, I mean, when I was 17, I worked in a physics environment. I'm going to squash this quick. You show me some software that behaves indeterministically. Uh, well, there's Present me with some code. I'd like to see it. And I'll bet you every other programmer in the world would like to see it. I think there are plenty of programmers that have to, through error correction, not employ... They the have error correction, which is ensuring that things stay deterministic. That's the whole point. Hmm. Well, I'd like to put this out to the broader Bias Live community, because I think William and I have a, have a, a distinctly different... Set of opinions with regards to the way to solve these problems, and it could, it could, well, it could match down just to our language. I agree with William, <laughs> and I, uh, I'll just chime in here that uh, never, never having programmed a single thing in my life, but just listening to the discussion here, I don't see why it's a problem to say what happens inside the computer, just the computer software itself, is completely deterministic. But what happens outside the confines of the software, outside in the real world, can disturb that deterministic... Um, it, can, it can provide problems to address. Yeah, but, yeah. But as I, soon, as, soon as, yeah. It, as soon as the deterministic, the internal deterministic behavior of software is toppled, it stops functioning. Mm -hmm. it's, it no longer do you have a program. Programs are all about being able to generate a result based on measurements, expectations, things like that. Yeah. That's you're the allowing whole for point fault of tolerance writing software. in your definition, aren't you, William? You're allowing for fault tolerance in your definition. Sure, and the way you handle fault tolerance is you make a measurement and you test it, and based upon the res response, you make a choice. Anytime you make a choice, you have determinism. The whole point of determinism is choosing. Yeah, so I don't understand, I guess, um, what, the, what the argument is, essentially, because can't, isn't it a, a point of agreement that if the software can be completely deterministic, but extraneous or external factors can... Uh, challenge that determinism? 
Other not challenge the determinism, but provide alternative issues that must be addressed. What a programmer does is predict the future. And the way they do this is they write code to handle every possible contingency. Uh-huh. That's what William, it is, is contingencies. William, now, I, I'd like to get back to your notion of uh, suggesting that uh, uh, wetware is a different situation. Uh, what you're saying is basically that a computer program is written on the faith that the computer it runs on is going to act in a deterministic fashion. And the way we get get the computer to do this is by making sure that it exists basically in a Newtonian physics environment. And that you get, if you look at Laughlin's book, that's, he talks about computers, and basically that's what he's saying. By keeping well above the quantum uh, world level, we can yeah. make sure that our computers behave in a deterministic fashion. Yes. Now, the distinction you're making with wetware is because wetware works in the real world, it can't, doesn't have that luxury. It's always affected by these quantum-level events. I'll agree Which, with that, yes. But why can't okay. the wetware be deterministic by, well, I'm sure wetware, by William's definition, in terms of the interaction, is deterministic. Because no, 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 no. Here's the difference. You okay. have to have a control, a mechanism to recover. And if there are some, remember, a programmer predicts the future. They account for things by, they account for every possible contingency. And in fact, failure to account for a contingency is known as a bug. No, no. There yeah. are, there are, well, it's also known as a feature. Well, sometimes you don't like to fix bugs, and therefore you put it in the description as being a feature. But in, in, a, in a very simple way of looking things, if you don't account for the contingency, it's a bug. The so let me understand this here. Let me understand this here. When, when a cell fails, it's a failure, and when software fails, it's a bug. Or does the cell never fail in the same way that the software you fails? You know what? Any person who uses software, who doesn't write it, who's just a user, and when the software fails, the first thing you're going to tell you is, it's broken software. It's a bug. Okay. When, and when the cell it, fails, when the cell fails, it's doing something different than the software. No, no, not at all. When a cell fails, uh, well, let's take an organism. Don't think about a cell. We're not allowed to think about an organism in William's construct because an organism has communication channels which are not deterministic. Well, some cells do and some don't. The thing is, uh, a cell, the concept of a cell is very different depending on whether you're talking about a, uh, an independently existing cell, one cell organism or a cell in a, in a body. They're not the same at all. Certainly. Uh, so, so As I have, argue that a computer independently and a computer in a vast network are different things. If you well, want to call it a bug, I'll agree that it's a bug. But the fact no, of the matter is that it occurs in a different environment. A program, a program, at least in William's concept, is something that has boundaries, and so does an organism have boundaries. An organism may nevertheless exist in an ecology, and, of course, interact with that ecology. But let's take, suppose an organism does not have a, quote, program in it that, uh, to account for some particular contingency 
Well, then what happens is it dies. Typically, it dies or gets killed or get eat, gets eaten or something like that. So it, it's failed. It fails. Now, the the what evolution does basically is uh, those that fail before they reproduce don't reproduce. Those who fail after they reproduce, well, okay, they failed, but the next generation has got another crack at it. So that's kind of the distinction. But but uh, shall we say that an organism, what what organisms do is they indeed have bugs uh, or features which lead to failure, uh, but then they get out of it by having reproduced before this failure occurs. Well, the problem is that you could end up with the same kind of behavior with machines. Oh, yes, you could, couldn't you? Self re- self-replicating machines could get out of that that same problem. And how about yeah. genetic algorithms? I mean, genetic algorithms in software as they solve problems are they deterministic by your definition, William? S- ask that question one more time. Genetic algorithms as they exist in software. Yes, they're deterministic. Everything genetic programming. Genetic Every, programming is that deterministic. Everything that they do is is um, programmed. It is predetermined. It is um, according to a set of rules. But the same definition is, also exists with regards to the particular kind of cells that Dick is focused on. So your metaphor is broken down. What we were discussing was the difference between a deterministic environment and an indeterministic environment. By your specific definition of that term? Well, I don't yes, think that I my mean, specific definition is particularly different from the average physicist. Well, well, except the average physicist isn't dealing with, well, in theory they're dealing with computational systems in some regard, but they're not dealing with the same kind of finite computational systems that you describe within a computer. Yeah, and that's one of the problems with with computers is that they are finite. Or the problem with physics. Even a Turing machine has certain finite characteristics to it. Or the problem with physics is it's infinite. An organism is finite too. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So what's the distinction between an organism and a computer program? William? Well, yeah. Come on. I'm you brought up the wetware. So. I'm thinking. You're thinking. Okay. Yeah, I might have to think for quite some time, and we're actually <laughs> beyond time for the for the discussion. So it gives me it gives me something to consider. Um, See, I'd, where I'd we like began to... this, where we began this was um, how you handle contingencies. And software, by its design, by its purpose, should handle all contingencies. Not all contingencies. Wait a second. Wait a second. Because because it is discrete and discontinuous, the opportunity for handling every possible contingency is much greater than it would be in a continuous. non-deterministic environment. Is it possible? Is it possible that it can handle all contingencies? That what can't handle? Software. Is it possible that software can handle contingencies? All contingencies, because that was part of your definition. Somehow your words are, are becoming uh, lost in the 
say that again. Is it possible that software can handle all contingencies? Within a well, within a well-defined problem, yes. Ah, yeah, that's the circular definition. <laughs> I would have to agree. The problem is that it's a circular definition for the machine itself. A, a Turing machine can compute all computable computations. That's a very circular argument. Okay. Yet it is the definition. Okay. Now, it's your definition. No, no, no. What it's a widely accepted definition. Okay. Okay. So look, let's let's start making the Turing machine components smaller and smaller, so they become unreliable in the quantum sense. Okay. What happens to the performance of that Turing machine? Silence. Perhaps you can. <laughs> Perhaps you can no longer construct a Turing machine in such an environment. Well, uh, well, you may have to change the definition of, compu of, uh, of a computation while you're at this. But on the way down to the quantum level, uh, you know, it's going to hiccup uh, as we start approaching it. Well, see, the problem with the quantum level is the. the you know, I've I've read a lot of material, little bits and pieces here and there, and uh, the suggestion is that somehow you can put into this quantum state every possible piece of information. Oh no 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 no! Roll I'm not the dice, and the answer pops out magically. No, you're missing you're missing something. No, I'm not talking about what people are calling quantum computers. That's that's an attempt to take advantage of. Uh, of the superposition principle in quantum mechanics. Yes. Okay? I, I'm not talking about that. In fact, uh, Laughlin discusses it in his book, and he thinks it's a, a notion which is which is physically impossible. Now, I, I don't... Oh, he thinks it's specious. Yes, he thinks, it's, he thinks quantum... The whole thing on co quantum computers is a bunch of money going after a, uh, an illusion. Uh, well, actually, it sounds like someone with some common sense. Okay. Okay. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about simply miniaturizing our uh, Intel chips, making them smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where the, they're no longer deterministic. Well, then at that point you can't program them. No, 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 no. I, why not? What because I'm saying they're no longer deterministic. Point, ah, I'm they won't saying... won't carry on a deterministic <laughs> process. That's right. So what I'm suggesting is that we... What at that point they become similar to living organisms? Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. I think they become similar to a living organism considerably closer to contemporary computing. But the question then is, you see, we to to assume that a living organism executes a computer program as we currently conceive computer programs, maybe the distinction between life and automata. Maybe there's a different kind of programming that works when your computer isn't reliable. Um, have to, von it, Neumann addressed that issue quite handily. Okay, let me so How do you build reliable systems with unreliable components? Right. And that's a, a major 
uh, part of his his dissertation on uh, self-replicating automata. But and it didn't show up in the von Neumann computer because the von Neumann computer is based on programming with reliable components. No, it's so not based upon programming with reliable components. It's, uh, it's you overwhelmingly um, account for all of the unreliability in order to build a reliable system, but the components are not expected to be reliable. No, they are in not. In the von Neumann machine, the design of a von Neumann computer, which we all run? You're referring to the processor in your, in your Mac? That's right. It's it's based on von Neumann's ideas, right? It is based on some of his ideas, and the the interesting thing is that um, the components are reliable over an expected period of time, but they're always um, identified with a, I believe it is, mean time between failures. Oh, of course, of course, and that's why... They're not reliable. Well, I know. Safari crashed on me while I was trying to listen to there, you guys that's earlier. That's the end of your argument. They're not built on... The computers are not built upon a notion of reliable components. I'm well, really concerned here that if we rewind 30 minutes in this recording, we've gone full circle with you, William. <laughs> you might have. <laughs> I think we have converted you and have you arguing from my point now. <laughs> Maybe I didn't understand your point clearly. You need to be more clear about what it is. Speaking of this, this, Dick mentioned that he was time-constrained. I'm also time-constrained this evening, unfortunately. So I I think we've we've gone full circle. Liz, I'm not sure if you still want to interact with us. We sound nuts even to me. Um, But I'd like to thank you for participating this evening, and and I I hope you will uh, entertain us for another Biota Live at some stage. (laughs) I certainly will. This is it, it's good practice for my philosophical skills to try to uh, tease out all the various arguments here and who's arguing which position and and how that works. <laughs> yeah, I'm confused on that too. So I'm I think we're all going to have to re-listen to this podcast. And apologies to those that are listening to it. Apparently, that uh, I've had to draw various diagrams as I have and uh, connecting lines. I guess I am going to suggest to you. Uh, Tom, that if you really want to demonstrate to me that we've gone full circle, you'll have to give a clear, logical argument as to why that is. I'd like you to do the same, because I think <laughs> in listening to the argument... I'm not the that we went full circle. Well, I think if you listen to it, you might find that we did. Why don't we, why don't we entertain this on a future Biota Live? Maybe even in correspondence. <laughs> as soon as I see some correspondence, yes. Very good. <laughs> Dick, okay. it's been a pleasure as always. Uh, and William, it's always fun. All right. For folks listening in, this has been an extraordinary Biota Live recorded on a Friday evening. Um, we will probably do one more Friday evening format and then move to the Saturday format at different times. William has hung up. Uh, I'd like to say okay. good night and good evening to uh, to Dick and Liz. Thank you very much okay. for participating. And thank our mysterious guest for this wonderful uh, reference to this uh, company that makes random number generators that exploit quantum physics. Certainly. Or similarly, you can just connect two two uh, two wires to a tap and let them drip. Uh, and similarly get beautiful random number generation. In fact, there are a wide variety of ways of getting random number generators, but um, 
what is it? I D Quantique or Quantique? I D Q U A N T I Q U E dot com. And thanks to uh, to Eric Burton or whoever guest four is for putting that into the chat. Good night, all. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.